This is our beginner's guide to the end series. We're looking at pieces and parts of Revelation. Revelation does give us the end and it gives us ends plural leading up to a final. I said last Sunday that we should read Revelation kind of like sheet music. That is, uh, there's musical structure to this, like going back over the same notes in a song. The song being not Jesus wins, because when Revelation begins, Jesus has already won. He's already glorified. The message of Revelation, the song, is the church wins, not in the sense of stepping on the necks of our enemies and flexing over them, but the church gets glorified in the end. This is our win. We've already, to this point, Revelation been given a, a couple of glimpses into heaven. We'll get some more as the book concludes. Despite whatever sets against the church, and many things set against the church, every generation, every culture, and the problems that the church causes itself, the church will make it to the glorification there awaiting us in heaven because Jesus has won already. This is Revelation. The book shows us the curtain falling on the world as we know it in order for the world as God will make it, a world fully reconciled to him, new heavens and new earth coexisting with no gulf between them. For that renewed world to emerge, this one has to give way. Because this one, the world as it is in sin, we've tried to throw God off, we've tried to kick God out of what is rightfully his, what actually belongs to him. And God has been extraordinarily patient with our rebellion for centuries now, his patience. He's given humanity centuries upon centuries of patience, but an end does come. It appears to have a certain sequence, which we should keep in pencil, I think. Godly people disagree without a sequence in times, but there is an end which judgments will, enter, will usher in, and these judgments, because a lot of Revelation actually has Old Testament echoes, these judgments really look quite similar to the Exodus judgments of old in ancient Egypt. God will judge the world order. The world order is presently disordered because of sin, which has affected everything. And God judges this when he does. And we're into these chapters now in Revelation where God's judgment is presented in very heavy imagery. A lot of it has these Old Testament echoes. And God judges not out of vindictiveness, but to vindicate the people who bear his name. His wrath is not raging, but the actions of one who is not apathetic, one who cares enough to take people seriously. He doesn't fly off the handle in the end, but, but he does bring judgment. Now, when we think about judgment, an angle on which we're probably not as well versed of thinking about it is how reconciliation itself is judgment. We don't tend to think about it this way, but when you think about God saving people, to do that, to redeem, God judges. Redemption itself is a judgment in that God saving people, he judges every strategy of self-redemption and self-righteousness we maintain. 
When God says only through Jesus can you be saved from the coming wrath against everything that has vandalized God's creation for human flourishing, and, and, and there we are holding our own cans of spray paint. We've tagged it. We've participated in the rebellion of old willingly, maliciously, and we still do. But when God intervenes to reconcile us to himself, it is because he has already judged us unworthy of his grace and forgiveness. Reconciliation is its self-judgment. And I say this for those who get into passages like this and say, you know, I wish it wasn't like this. I wish God would just be gracious to everybody. I wish he wouldn't be wrathful. I'd rather him redeem and reconcile everyone and judge no one. But, but what that perspective overlooks is we don't get God without judgment coming or going. To get God is to get his judgment. Either it happens at the cross where your sin is judged and you are regarded as someone who is unworthy apart from the merits of Christ being applied to you, or the judgment happens at the end, standing before the Lord on your own, as it were. God redeems people. Now is the time of his favor. Today is the day of salvation. He calls someone from everyone, but anyone and everyone he redeems is undeserving. So, Reconciliation itself is judgment. And so these judgments that we see playing out now in these uh, middle chapters of Revelation, it's not oh, God finally gives people what they deserve, you know, like he's Thor with his big hammer. And he's going to come down now and, and uh, they're going to play Led Zeppelin and he's going to go bonkers on everybody. In actuality, through these judgments, and we see it today at the end of chapter 9, through these judgments, God is showing people their true heart all along. That, that if, you, if you don't come to him in the time of his favor, then, then in the time of his wrath, you're, you're still not going to come. Even though he's made the way to him open, we refuse that way at all costs. Even when he sends final judgments and people know what's going on, they know it's God. We'd still rather have our self-righteousness. We'd still rather have our unrighteousness. Important to keep this in mind as we look at these screenshots of judgment here. We're just taking Revelation in pieces and, and sections. We're not going uh, through every detail. And we're not even going through every detail in, in these passages. But in these two passages, chapters 8 and 9 that Sheila just read to us, the beginning of chapter 8, first five verses, the end of chapter 9 from verse 13 to 21, we have in the beginning of chapter 8 the seventh seal, and we have at the end of chapter 9 the sixth trumpet. And in Revelation, if you're not familiar with the layout of Revelation, in Revelation there are seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, and it's all about judgment. It's judgment in a series, three series of seven. In the Old Testament, this is previewed as the day of the Lord. If you go back and read the old prophets and they talk about the day of the Lord, which is a, a cataclysmic event. It's not just a day. They call it the day of the Lord. Many of the prophets do, but it's, it's likely a seven-year period when you take the Old Testament book of Daniel into account, a seven-year period during which Exodus-like judgments on Egypt of old, judgments like that return. 
And there's a sequencing of these judgments playing out at the end. The seals picture them, seven of them, then the seven trumpets, then the seven bowl judgments. We'll get to those a little bit later. Jesus spoke of the hour of judgment. Uh, the Old Testament, you get the day of the Lord. Jesus speaks of the hour. If you go back to John's gospel, he spoke of it there. When Jesus said, uh, now is, is the hour, he's talking about actually the hours on the cross and in the tomb. But you lump that together and the way this gets spoken of is as if it was an hour, the judgment hour. There's also reference to hour here. You've got it in chapter 9. Verse uh, 15, so the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now this, this seems to happen over time, over a, a particular time period. But there's another reference to hour back in chapter 3 of Revelation, and I think it's important we see this. Look back at chapter 3. Jesus is speaking in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, these uh, messages he has for these seven ancient churches. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, he tells the church in Philadelphia, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, the seals, we get the seventh seal here at the opening of chapter 8. The seals began to be unfolded in chapter 6. Chapter 6 to chapter 8 here describes this hour of trial. Chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus says there's an hour of trial coming. But it's not just an hour. It seems to be actually years that this plays out. But it's called an hour. It's called a day. And the trumpets that follow are these trials intensified. We're just going to look at the sixth trumpet. And then you get the bowls following the trumpets. All this imagery all these angels involved, it's about the new world emerging out of the old. I mean, that's really what all this is about. But for the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem descending down, for, for that renewed, reconciled world to come into being, this one has to give way. The bell has to toll. The hour has to come. The day has to dawn in which... These judgments that take up most of Revelation get experienced. Revelation, the end of it tells us that a new Jerusalem is going to descend. Before new Jerusalem descends at the end of Revelation, where we are now in Revelation, God's judgments descend. This is pictured here in chapter 8, verse 5. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Imagery for things of consequence, matters of judgment now unleashed. Now, looking there at chapter 8, verse 5 that I just read, if you look back up at verses 3 and 4, we saw there that the censer contains the prayers of the saints. The censer is this uh, uh, thing that was used in Old Testament worship, and it has incense in it, but the, the prayers are, are, are picture, a picture of the, of the prayers of the saints. 
which we saw back in chapter 5, verse 8. I'll just read this to you. Chapter 5, verse 8, we looked at this a couple of Sundays ago. When he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's chapter 5, verse 8. Now over in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, you get this picture again. But in chapter 8, the prayers that have been going up for centuries, heard by God, kept by God, it's a picture, and now judgment comes, chapter 8, comes down in response to all these prayers prayed over centuries. What's in the prayers? We saw that a couple Sundays ago, back in chapter 6. These are how long, O Lord, prayers. How long, O Lord, until you vindicate the people who bear your name? We're in chapter 8. We're told in chapter 8 and the chapters following after it that these prayers prayed for centuries. How long, O Lord? Prayed still today, here, and all throughout the world. They get answered by way of God judging the world. Now, it's not in a rage, I say again, but it is to cleanse the earth, the scouring of the Shire, as Tolkien uh, titled a later chapter in his Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's a cleansing of the earth, a casting of Satan into hell so that God can dwell here with his people. This is what's said at the last of the seven trumpets. It says over in chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel blows his trumpet and there are loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, I'm stating some things here that are more than we've looked at yet and it's difficult with Revelation because you get musical score. It's like we go back, we read this this chapter verse and this reminds us of something we sang earlier and then we come back and sing it again. Revelation can be confusing in all of its imageries and everybody's endless opinions about it, but it helps to have some of these things in mind as we now look at another timestamp in chapter 8 verse 1. So looking at chapter 8 verse 1, you get this reference to half an hour. Chapter 8 verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Keep in mind chapter 3, verse 10. Because you've kept my word, this is chapter 3, verse 10, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on it. And in chapter 8, verse 1, you get this reference to a half hour. So this half hour in chapter 8 follows the opening of the seventh seal. Half an hour of silence in heaven, see it? It seems to be splitting this hour of trial Jesus announced to one of the churches back in Revelation 3 because you take things in context within a book. This reference to half an hour in chapter 8 verse 1 is some decisive event within the greater trial, hour of trial on earth. Whatever that event is, heaven goes silent for a time. I don't know that I know what that event is and I'm not going to take sermon time to speculate. Revelation doesn't say what we do know, and what we should focus on, what we do know, is that these how long, O oh Lord, prayers have been going up before God for centuries. 
prayers, not prayed in hatred for those who cause us trouble, but hope for vindication of the church, that God be proved right in his dealings with us. What we have here in chapters 8 and following is everything the seals previewed unfolding, the trumpets then it intensifies, and then when the bowls come into the picture, it all gets completed and finalized. Judgment happens in stages, in sequence, culminating in the new Jerusalem coming down. I know this is a lot to take in, but before new Jerusalem comes down, which is the, the big anticipated event in Revelation, the city of God coming to, to earth, God takes down the cities of humanity and he does, throw, does so through the instrumentation of avenging angels. Notice in chapter 8 here that the angels present these prayers for vindication to God. And then in chapters 8 and 9 and following, the angels bring the vindication of God to earth. So the, the role of angels is intermediary. We are praying the prayers. They are doing the, the judging. We pray they judge. They don't pray for us, and we don't judge for them. We pray, they judge as God's avengers to cleanse the world from everything that will not be reconciled to God. The old has to go. Sin has to go for the new to come, and there not be any sin left hanging around to infect it. Let me give us two takeaways from these two passages in chapters 8 and nine, I, I am not preaching revelation to satisfy end-time curiosities and read in speculative ideas, read in our current political preoccupations. There's an epidemic in China. Oh, that must mean this and this and this. There's a, a lot of uh, approaches to that that we're familiar with in our circles, but preaching is exhortation centered in the gospel, which is the message that God is God for us and that he gives himself to be our salvation. Preaching needs to dwell on that and respond to that. So I'm trying to go to places in Revelation where we see responses to God. If I was teaching Revelation in a seminary course, we would go start to finish throughout. We would try to account for all the details, try to account for how this has been sequenced by godly people through the centuries and, and weigh the evidence and the, and the perspectives on that. But I'm preaching it. And preaching is different. Preaching has to be about the gospel. Preaching has to be about how to respond to the God who does all things well, including when he, as it were, rolls up his sleeves for this kind of judgment. So, in this vein, we see in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, the reason I put chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 with chapter 9, verses 13 through 21, is that in chapter 8 passage, prayers for vindication are going up. And in the chapter 9 passage we're looking at, God's vindication is coming down. It's one of the trumpets, the sixth trumpet. We're just getting a sample of it. But what's our takeaway? What might be two good responses for us to consider when we look at passages like this? Well, I'll give you two. And one has to do with praying. And the other has to do with judging. Praying and judging. 
first praying. Look again at chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. God hears all these prayers. What you've got here in the censers, this this audiovisual, you know, vision that, that John has given. What you've got here is all these prayers prayed for centuries for the vindication of the people of God. You've got prayers about injustices being suffered because we bear the name of the Lord. You've got prayers of weariness with the wear and tear of sin in this world, the damage our sin does one to another and to ourselves, this world that God made good and and sin made bad. You've got our prayers and these censors for people who do not know Jesus as their Redeemer, and prayers for people who do but have been seduced by the world. And you've got prayers of lament. And if you want it in a word, that's what the prayers and the censors in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, the, the golden censors with the incense and the, the prayers, what the prayers are, it, in a word, it's lament. Lament that recognizes this world is disordered in its loves and its aspirations. Lament that recognizes the world is in rebellion and hurts over that. Real vandalism of God's shalom. Lament for injustices people suffer, including ourselves. When I was reading this, Psalm 56 came to mind. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Psalm 56 is a psalm that David wrote on the run from Saul. Being hunted down, driven from home. In Philistine territory, they, they get a hold of him, take him before one of their kings, and he, he's living in caves with malcontents, not fun company to keep. People are always bitter about something. He's got 400 men with him who are aggrieved at Saul. He's having to listen to them complain all the time. In Psalm 56, David takes up a lament in one of these caves. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample me on, on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. This is Psalm 56. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they've waited for my life. For their crime will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. And he goes on to rehearse again his trust in the goodness of God despite the circumstances he finds himself in. It's lament. Lament is faith seeking understanding as opposed to just venting. 
But it's also faith practicing understanding. And that's what's in these prayers of the saints that keep going up to God that the angel here uh, presents in this triumphant way. Faith practicing the understanding. How long, O Lord, until you vindicate? I know you will. I believe. Knowing. We take these groanings to God, seeking His ultimate intervention to reconcile the world to Himself by cleansing through these end-time judgments that are wild to read about. They are, but they have a point. And the prayers that we pray for to this end, it's not vindictiveness, it's anguished faith, it's weathered faith, it's wearied faith, and yet resolved to trust that God is hearing and keeping all we pour out to Him, and He will act, and He will act justly. See, how we know, you look at this scene in chapter 8, and how we know that this scene in heaven in chapter 8 is not just imagined, but it's reality that encompasses past, present, and future, is because we're this side of the cross and the resurrection that followed. That's how we know God hears us and keeps what we pour out to Him. Because of the cross, He told us for all time, He is for us. For now, it's tears and tossings and a lot of stuff we don't want. That's Psalm 56. Psalm 56 is in the golden censer in Revelation 8. But again, lament prayer. It's not just faith-seeking understanding. It's also faith-practicing understanding through tears and tossings. But rehearsing it nonetheless that I know God will make good on everything he has promised to do and be for us in Jesus. So we keep calm and pray on. Faith emboldened. You know, something profound happens to people with cause to be lamentful. They can actually get really courageous. Malcolm Gladwell pointed to this in one of his books. He wrote about the London Blitz. That's where the little little keep calm signs you see everywhere now, that's where they actually originated. I Wikipedia'd this, I didn't know. Yes, I don't know that you can, uh, you know, claim Wikipedia in a lot of contexts, but I looked up a keep calm sign. I read the little story about how in World War II, the keep calm and carry on signs they didn't get used a lot, but the, the idea was to communicate to the public around England with the crown on there, the sovereign is in control. So keep calm, carry on. The bombing of London during World War II, it took out tens of thousands of lives, but it did so amid a population of millions And so that means while London was subjected to great tragedy and loss of life, not discounting that at all, but far more Londoners were numbered among the near misses and the remote misses. Night after night, horrific bombings and death, but most Londoners not hit, and it actually drew out their courage. They kept calm and carried on. Those who weren't directly hit were emboldened because they survived, and Gladwell says in talking about this in one of his books, it would have been better for the Germans to never bomb London at all because it only made the English more resilient. When we get to Revelation 12, we see there Satan pictured as a dragon standing on a shore. He's our enemy and he's presented full of fury because he knows his time is short. That's what Revelation 12 will say. It's a direct quote of verse 12 in Revelation 12. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. 
What has he done with his time, his short time? He has wreaked havoc in every corner of God's creation. But because Revelation tells us this havoc gets judged and cast out of God's renewed world to come, cast out cataclysmically with all this awful imagery leading up to. But God is acting. He's not apathetic. It would have been better from the perspective of heaven if Satan had never challenged God because all this did was seal his fate but also make God's people more resilient. You see it in every generation and in every culture. And prayer is one of the ways we demonstrate our resiliency. Now, second takeaway of two, and we'll go into communion. At the end of chapter 9, looking at the chapter 9 passage now, verses 13 to 21, judgment coming down, the sixth trumpet of seven. Prayers have been going up for vindication, chapter 8. Vindication comes down, chapter 9, in judgment. These trumpet judgments, period of intense judgment on the earth. Seven-year timeline, it seems. Natural disasters, geopolitical upheaval, epidemics, market collapse, all of it. I told you earlier that angels bring the vindication of God to earth. Avenging angels. We pray, they judge. They don't pray for us and we don't judge for them. We pray, they judge as God's avengers. The world gets cleansed of everything that will not be reconciled to God. The fire falls for this, that the old has to go. Sin has to go. The new coming reality of God and people cannot have any active sin within it. But we see in this sixth trumpet, this intense judgment, look at the very end of chapter 9. The heart of sin is revealed. Verse 20, chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What is this about? Is, is this God bowing up on people? Well, he's, he's always been more powerful. He doesn't need to bow up on anybody. God doesn't judge at the end here to turn anyone to himself, but to show those who would not turn all along that no judgment will make them turn. He does this to show the dead set nature of our sin. That apart from an intervention of God through Jesus Christ and his spirit on our behalf, this will be us. This is how much we love our sin. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's the self-sacrifice of God, not, not his terrors, but his grace that ultimately turns the human heart from our love affair with our sin to go looking in sin for what we should find in a Savior instead. That's what we're seeing at the end of chapter 9 here. People who never wanted God in his grace still don't want him in his judgment. They won't turn. Like Satan, in the chapter coming, chapter 12, they've set their course to rage against God, even if they've never actually lifted a fist toward heaven. For you and me, it need not be so. And it isn't 
for us in Christ. If you eat and drink from this table a minute or two from now, you're saying in the action of eating and drinking from this table, it isn't this way for me. I have believed God in the time of his favor. I have received his grace offered to me through his son. And now there is now for me no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I'm counted among those who pray for the vindication of the church, who leave the judging to God while looking to the eastern sky for Jesus to crack it there in power and call my name if my death doesn't precede that day, that hour. When you ingest something, that's an intimate act. And whenever we take this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, that I am reconciled to God because I received my judgment there in his death. We proclaim the Lord's death and its application to us for acceptance with God until he comes again. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that you've given us a sure hope and that you have shown us the way. Now is the day of salvation. This is the hour of your faithfulness. An hour that encompasses so many hours. A day that lasts for eons. Until that hour of trial comes, that day of the Lord comes. And then, Lord, it is a matter of settling accounts with a world that owes you big time. And I thank you that even in that, Lord, your greatness is displayed, your character. We pray, Lord, that we will be those who are attentive, those who are alert and awake, who are watching. Not out of some um, sense that uh, if you return, you know, we don't want to be found in the wrong place at the wrong time, that, that kind of moralism, but that the morality that is important would come out of a, of a heart of wanting to respond to your heart of love for you. Lord, help us in this because we get easily turned around and we're preoccupied and we're divided and that you would do a work in your church, that you would cleanse us that we wouldn't so focus on the ways the world needs to be cleansed that we miss. The church needs cleansing too. But you've brought us in. You cleanse us as those who already belong to you. Lord, strip away and cleanse all that is unworthy of a walk with you in us, we pray. And that this communion time is a time for us to center again on who you are and what you've accomplished for us. We pray in Christ's name.